Today's passage, I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 2. If you guys want to turn there, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark 2, starting in verse 1. And when he, Christ, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And they had made an opening. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has, on, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to, to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day that you've given us, God, and, and just bringing us together on this Lord's Day, that we can read your word, and, and we can see the goodness and the glory and everything that you've provided, God. And just ask that this message be glorifying and edifying, Lord, and that we can take something and learn from it and, and go about our, our ways, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, now you guys can take a seat. Now I just want to provide a little bit of, of background on what is happening here in Capernaum during this time. This is early in Jesus Christ's ministry in Galilee. At this time, he's been tempted by Satan. He calls upon his first disciples. Provides healing to a, to a man with an unclean spirit. Also, Christ has been around Galilee preaching through the synagogues. So once he arrives at Capernaum, over the next chapter, Christ starts to deal with some issues that are raised amongst the Pharisees. So this afternoon, I will have three points for us that we can listen and and learn from. So point number one, if you're ready, Christ knows our needs better than we know our own needs. Christ knows our needs better than we know our own needs. So I want to take a look at the first five chapters, or sorry, the first five verses of Mark chapter two. So when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word of them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. So Christ's ministry is getting noticed at this time. The news is traveling, and many are, are not only coming just to see Christ and, and to hear and preach, but they're also coming to see the miracles being performed. This home that he was staying in was more than likely the home of Peter and Andrew. Remember that Christ grew up in, in Nazareth, which was a few miles away. Uh, more than likely, this was a home base where he was staying at, conducting his public ministry in Capernaum. 
Christ was not allowed any privacy. See, he's flocked by people wanting to see his public ministry and on the miracles being performed. The doors are packed and people are more than likely standing outside trying to get in, trying to see what's, what's going on, what, what is Christ doing at this time. So now we have a paralytic man and his four friends. They come. And they can't get into the home. So what they do instead, they kind of get up on the roof and, and to get a better understanding of how they were able to get on the roof, I, I would help to visualize these homes around this time. These homes were, I would describe them as sort of like a modern day studio. There was just very small, one bedroom. Uh, there was an access to a flat roof, usually by, by a stairwell from, from the outside or even inside. The roof itself was made of a wooden beam and thatched to prevent the elements from getting into the home. The original language when studying this passage suggests that these men unroofed the roof. They literally had to deconstruct this roof. It's not just a hatch that they pull up and, and, and can walk right in. The destruction of the roof required these men to pull up the beam, the thatch, some tiles. There was no doubt that dirt and mud were pouring down on the people below them. So once this roof is opened, this allowed the paralytic and the, and the four men to or the four men to lower this paralytic down to see Christ. And when Christ sees these these men in their faith, he responds in verse 5 to the paralytic, saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is probably not necessarily the reason why or or what the man thought he needed when he he came to, to Christ. Christ knew that the lameness of which this man was suffering was not even close to being compared to the the suffering that he would eternally endure separated from Christ. See, many first century Jews believed that every every discomfort, every trial that one experienced was God's punishment for some specific sin. This sin could have either occurred in the womb or was passed onto the child if the parents were to commit a sin that would directly victimize the child. We see an example of this belief even from Christ's disciples in John chapter 9 in the first three verses. We read in John 9, 1 through 3, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, there is no doubt that some of these scribes have the same belief pattern Christ addresses the true need of this man, and that is a need for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you've been raised in a church, this story is very familiar, I would imagine, to, to a lot of you. Now, unfortunately, this story is also commonly misconstrued. The main focus of this passage is not that the fact that the paralytic man and his friends removed the roof, came down, trusted the Lord that, would, that he would provide healing, though this is an important part of this passage. So we've not yet reached the main topic but we can still learn from the intent of these men to see Christ and their trust in his power to heal and to save. Now, I'm not saying that we should break down the roofs of homes and and burst into people's homes, but I am saying that we should have the same intention. We should have the same courage and desire to trust the Lord and Christ in all that we do. See, we need to have the same amount of trust that these men did in Christ. They trusted that he would provide for their needs and believe that he has the power to do so. We can see that Christ not only healed this man of his lameness, but he forgave the man of his sins and redeemed the man. 
So this brings us to, to another point that I would, I would like to write down, to point number two. This, we're going to spend the majority of, of the time on the, the rest of this passage here. So Christ has the power to forgive sins. Point number two, Christ has the power to forgive sins. Now, I'm going to take, read the, the rest of this passage here, starting in Mark 2, verse 6. Now, some of these scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within himself, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has, on, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified and saying, we have never seen anything like this. See, after Christ tells a paralytic man that his sins are forgiven, some of the scribes are starting to question whether Christ has the authority to forgive sins. This charge that the scribes are bringing is a charge of blasphemy. And the charge is perfectly valid if God is just a mere man. <clears throat> Blaspheming went, meant to say something that dishonored the Lord in a deliberate, directed, mocking, or slanderous manner. An example of this would be if someone were to claim divine prerogative or to claim to speak for God when one does not have such authority. We see that happening a lot in our churches today. See, the power to forgive, to forgive the sins of man is a prerogative only offered and only afforded to God alone. To claim divinity and to claim authority is a crime punishable by death. So in Mark, only two times do we actually see Christ being charged with blasphemy. Once here, and then another time in Mark 14, during the hearing before the council in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. See, this charge that some of these scribes were questioning, it's a, it's a very serious crime. You know, Leviticus, Leviticus describes this crime as, being, as, as, as punishable by death, by, by stoning. See, Christ knew that these, what these scribes were thinking. In Luke's account of this passage, Luke uses the term Pharisees in Luke 5, chapter, or in Luke 5 verse 21. See, some of these scribes that were listening to Christ were not just here to see miracles performed. We know what scribes have been trying to do since Christ has started his public ministry. They're always looking for a way to entrap him. Blasphemy would have been, would have been that perfect crime to have Christ convicted and crucified. Christ recognizes what was going on. This isn't something new. This has happened before. So he turns to the Pharisees and the scribes and he asks them, why do you question these things in your hearts? See, the focus now is on this entire group. Christ is addressing this entire group when he asks them this question. He wants them to think about what they're charging him with and to also think about what is just about to happen. So he asks this group a very direct and challenging question. And he says, which is easier, to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? See, the question that Christ provides is a very common argument technique amongst these people at this time. This argument is to make an argument from the greater or the lesser. 
Essentially, if Christ can do the big thing or the, really, or the more difficult thing, then he would have no issue or no problem doing something much smaller. This challenge was supposed to be really a reflective question on this group. See, Christ knows that on one hand, it is easier to proclaim that one person's sins are forgiven because there isn't an immediate act of physical restoration. While to physically heal someone would be definitely more challenging than just to merely proclaim something. On the opposite hand, Christ recognizes that the scribes and Pharisees know that to physically heal someone would be vastly more simple than to pardon the man of, of sins. So again, these scribes and these Pharisees know that only God has this power and has this authority. See, the proof that Christ act, or that provides is really unique. It's sort of like when someone asks you a question, well, do you want this thing or do you want this other thing? And we just say, well, yes, I want both. You know, you can't, you can't choose one or the other. It would be wrong to choose one option over another option. So going back to this argument technique, if the scribes and Pharisees believe that to physically heal somebody would be more difficult than to proclaim that one's sins are forgiven, the argument's logical conclusion has been perfectly met. There's no room for error in understanding what has just happened here. Christ does both. He tells a paralytic man to get up and walk. He performs a miracle right in front of them. The walking of the man would be considered proof that Christ is Lord and has the power to forgive the sins of this man. Now, I don't want to miss the important part of this message here. It's comical, and it's quite shocking to see how these scribes and Pharisees respond to this claim, or this question. See, Christ makes a bold statement that we must address. While asking this group this rhetorical question, at the very end, Christ says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has, earth on, has authority on earth to forgive sins. See, this statement that Christ gives, this is a direct affirmation of his claim to divine authority. Christ uses this argument technique from the greater to the lesser to show that this group, that he, Jesus, is Lord. To prove to this group and to this people that he can do the easier task, he does the more difficult task. He heals the man of his paralysis. The man stands up, picks up his mat, the exact same mat that he was carried in by and lowered from the ground by his four friends, and he walks home. Now this response was instantaneous. This was not months and weeks of healing. The scribes and Pharisees were shocked that this once lame and this once crippled man is perfectly able to not just walk, but he's able to pick up his bed, bear weight, and go home. Now these scribes and these Pharisees rejoiced. They were shocked and amazed about what had just happened right before their eyes. They glorified and they praised God for what just happened. See, Christ provides healing and restoration to his people, and sometimes not, all, not in the form that we want. See, this man, he wanted a physical restoration. He wanted the use of his legs again. Though Christ did address the physical needs of this man, we must remember that our physical needs are never going to bring us closer to the Lord. Now, I mentioned John 9 earlier, when Jesus heals a blind man. So in John 9, 
Let me read verses 2 and 3 again. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? John answered, It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. While I was studying this passage, I kept thinking of the similarities between this paralytic man and this blind man that, that Christ healed. See, Christ physically, he also physically healed the paralytic man. But he did so too in order to show that the works of God were being done right before these scribes and these Pharisees. But again, let's not miss the Christocentric theme of this passage. Christ has the power and he has the authority to forgive sins. Now, I want to move on to our, our third point for this afternoon. Point two and three, they kind of go hand in hand together. They're very similar. And I want to flesh out more of this idea of, of, well, why does Christ have this power? And why does he have this authority to forgive sins? So point three, which is an answer to that question, is Christ is the Son of Man. So point three, Christ is the Son of Man. So Mark 2, verses 9 through 12 so which is easier to say to the paralytic, your, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never, we never saw anything like this. See, Christ is making a statement to show his lordship. He has the power and authority to forgive this man of his sins. So this term, son of man, you know, it's something I really wish we had more time to, to dive in and, and discuss about. There's, a, there's multiple meanings and multiple implications depending on the context of, of how it is being used. And I, and I want to just share some of those so we can get a better understanding of, of which manner and which way this, this term son of man is used. So the first potential use case could simply just mean a human being. You know, it's a term used to physically describe the relationship between a man and his son. See, the language and the use case for this doesn't really support that context, though. So Christ is making a divine proclamation about his ability to forgive the sins of this man. And he's not talking about a relationship between two humans. Second potential use case, which makes a little bit more sense than the first. The use case Christ actually uses when he's specifically referring to the death and resurrection of himself. So again, this, the context doesn't really make sense when he's referring to a divine authority to specifically forgive sins of, of man. Now, the final use case, and what seems to support this context best, is the use case that we find in Daniel chapter 7. If you guys want to turn to Jan Daniel chapter 7. And it's kind of using the, the apocalyptic son of man. So, in Daniel's vision, Daniel is telling us that this son of man will have authority and dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages. So, in Daniel 7, I'll read just verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, 
and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, looking at this passage and, and looking at Christ's or this dominion that is being that Daniel is describing, with his power and authority, how closely does this remind us to the Great Commission? Christ tells his disciples that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, referring to, to himself. So going back to this argument from the greater to the lesser, Christ has presented to ter- the terms to them. These scribes and these Pharisees, they, they understand what is happening. So Christ is also asserting that only God has the authority to forgive this man's sins. This meaning could only be ascribed to the one who, 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 can, who can save this man. It's kind of funny. Notice the shift in the passage from, not specific from the scribes and Pharisees, and then now immediately directly to this paralytic man. So he addresses the scribes and, and Pharisees when he asks them the rhetorical question, when he brings a, the argument in front of them. But he, then he turns and he tells the man to get up and walk. This is right after he asserts his divine authority. He asserts that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. So, this amazed the scribes and Pharisees. Christ perfectly, he represented his authority both over physical needs as well as spiritual needs of this man. Christ has declared his dominion, his power, and his authority. We must never forget and we must always remember that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So as we move into the season of Advent, and we start to put an end to what has probably been a really strange and odd year, let's not forget the grace and mercy of our Lord. So Christ continues to provide for our needs far more abundantly than we can ever think. See, like this paralytic man who thought he just needed physical healing from his, from his disability. See, this man thought he just needed to have the use of his legs again. Christ addressed his physical needs and his physical desires, but he saved the man from his sins. Christ, in this passage, he also declares his his glory to the scribes and to the Pharisees. Christ gave this man something that is vastly more important. He gave him the gift of eternal life. So through the faith of this paralytic man and, and trusting the Lord, he was given in pardon from his sins. See, this gift that was given to this man is not something that we could ever earn. It's not something that is owed to us. It's not a debt that we accrue in any way. See, our sin eternally separates us from God. The Bible teaches us that we are dead in our sins, but Christ makes us, makes us alive by his atoning work on the cross. See, there's nothing we can do. There's no amount of good works that will save us from the wrath of God. Isaiah 64 describes our righteous deeds are like that of a menstrual rag. See, our righteous deeds are worthless without Christ paying the sacrifice and the penalty for our sins. Because we are dead in our sins, what we can offer Christ is absolutely nothing. As we continue to celebrate our Lord and our Savior during this time of Advent, may we be reminded of the penalty that he took 
on the cross. See, it should have been us. See, we should be the ones that are crucified. We should be the ones with the nails through our hands and our feet. We should be the ones that are beaten and spit upon. But God is gracious. And he's merciful. He sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins. See, Christ, he suffered in our place. During this time of Advent, let us not forget that the Lord knows our needs better than we know our own needs. He continues to provide even in situations where there seems to be no hope. Christ can take the vilest and the most wicked situations and he uses them to showcase his glory. See, the Lord can forgive us of our sins. We must trust that Christ is Lord and we must confess our sins to him. Because Christ is King and because Christ is Lord, we can find hope in His mercy and His grace. May that even be more recognized during this time of Advent. Remember, the Lord is holy, holy, holy. See, the Scriptures tell us how we can have this forgiveness of sins. Romans 10.9 reads, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So in response, let us confess our sins and trust the Lord in all areas of our life. Let us pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for everything that you've, you've given us, Lord. And you were so gracious and so merciful. And even in times where there seems to be no light, Lord, and, and, there, and there doesn't seem to be any, any, any hope. You are always there and you are always providing, God. And may, may us always remember the promise that you will not leave us and you will not forsake us. So as we go about our ways this week, Lord, just continue, continue to preach that to us and remind us and instill it in our hearts, Lord. Let us not forget who you are and your attributes, Lord. In your precious name we pray.